Well, it wasn't long ago that I made my wife watch a movie on Netflix that I had seen before that I personally really enjoy, and it's a movie called Deception. Or forgive me, Deception. It's not Deception. It's called Defiance. I knew it started with a D, though. Uh, it's a movie called Defiance. I don't know if you've seen Defiance, but it's actually based off of a true story. And the story uh, involves uh, a Jewish family, three brothers, but it really focuses on the two older brothers who were living in, I think it was Poland, I can't quite remember, but they were living somewhere in that area uh, at the start of World War II. And so the Nazis had come into their Jewish-owned farms and killed many of their family members, taken many others to these Jewish ghettos, Um, but these two older brothers managed to escape to the woods, and word got out that they had escaped out there. And so some of the other people who managed to flee uh, found their way to the woods and they kind of started a little camp there. And then word kept growing and growing and growing and people, Jews, were sneaking out of the ghettos and going to the wilderness and they ended up starting a pretty remarkable civilization out in the woods. They built hospitals and schools and they, they, they took care of hundreds of refugee, refugee Jewish people. But one of the conflicts in the movie, one of the conflicts in the story, happens between the two older brothers who are sort of leading the charge. One is the name, goes by the name of Tuvia, and the other one, Zeus. And they had a problem of philosophy. You see, Tuvia wanted to just stay the course. He wanted to stay in the wilderness, keep building, keep taking people on, and if they're found, they'll move and they'll restart. He just, he just wanted to stay in the woods as long as they could. Zeus was wired a little bit differently. Uh, He didn't want to flee. He wanted to fight. He didn't want to just keep taking on people that they had no food and no resources for. He wanted revenge. He wanted to correct what happened. And so they constantly had this headbutt going on until eventually what happens is Tuvia finds a USSR, a Russian troop, a Russian brigade that are also fighting the Nazis at this time. And so he decides to join their ranks. Because, after all, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? After all, they're fighting and killing Nazis, and that's what he wants to do. He wants to kill Nazis. Tuvia warns Zeus from doing it. He doesn't want Zeus to do it. He thinks it's a bad idea. But Zeus and a few other of his Jewish compatriots decide to do just that. And they learn the hard way, the very hard way, that Tuvia was right. Because you see, here's what they learned, and it didn't take them long to learn. That yes, the Russians hated the Nazis too, and yes, the Russians were fighting the Nazis, but there was no home for the Jewish people among the Russians. The Jews were not friends with them either. Zeus learned the hard way that whether the Nazis win, or whether the Soviets win, we lose. He learned the hard way that, no, the enemy of my enemy is not my friend. There was no home for him there. They were willing to use him. They were willing to use his services. But as soon as they got what they want, he's in trouble. Again, they were not his friend. They happened to be shooting at the same enemy at that time. But they were not friends. And it is my opinion that Zeus serves as an accurate analogy of what I see happening to the Christian church at large in our modern-day intense culture wars. 
It is my opinion that as these last month, as it seems like the culture has just exploded with animosity and aggression and division and anger, one of my biggest fears is that there are Christians joining forces with enemies because we're all shooting at the same people right now. I see the Christian church thinking they have a home somewhere that they don't have a home. I won't get into great detail and explain exactly what is happening in our country. I'm just going to assume that many of you have at least followed the news to some degree and you've seen the protests, you've seen the debates, you've seen the rioting and the looting even in some circumstances. But most of you are probably familiar that, you know, to a certain degree, this, this fighting, this division, these rivalries, this is not new. I think certainly after the killing of George Floyd, they have exploded with a new intensity level that we have never seen before. But Christians have been engaged in what has been nicknamed these kind of social wars for longer than I've been alive. And it seems just about every few years, there's a new hot button issue whether we're fighting abortion or fighting against homosexuality or transgenderism, and now there's this race division. But there's always something. We've been seeing for years fatal encounters with the police and black Americans, and then we've seen people debating what's going on, what's happening, why is this happening, and we have not found much common ground, and I think it's safe to say that our country, both religiously, politically, and ethnically, is not in good shape right now. We are a divided country with bitterness and animosity for one another. Now, in terms of beginning to talk and share what I think is going on, there are so many different buzzwords that I could throw around. There are so many different things we could uh, get into. We could talk about statistics. We could talk about words like social Marxism and critical race theory and intersectionality and systemic racism and white privilege. And these are the things, these are the, the terminology, the lingo that's being debated. And I have opinions on each and every one of those things, but you didn't come up here to show up this morning for my opinions. Yeah, the pulpit is certainly not a place for me to turn into my personal soapbox while I have your undivided attention and you have to listen to me and you're not allowed to interact. That's, that's not what this is for. But I do think that as we've been trekking through Galatians, I think that our next two verses in Galatians actually provide a helpful and biblical, not a personal opinion, but a helpful and biblical critique of what we as Christians need to do. How do we need to think about what's happening in our culture and, and what do we do from there on out? And I think that this passage in Galatians will be helpful. So if you would turn to Galatians chapter 3, I will likely have more to say on these two verses. I will probably incorporate them in our text next week, but I'm just going to keep it very basic and very simple. We're going to look just at verses 27 and 28. Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. If you would follow along with me, for these are the very words of God. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. 
There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28 is one of the most popularly discussed verses in all of Christian history. Uh, Paul says something almost word for word, verbatim, in the book of Colossians. And so if you take these two together, this is an extremely popular verse, and I think for good reason. I mean, verse 28 of Galatians 3 is the glorious consequence of the gospel. Galatians 3.28 is not the gospel. It's the consequence of the gospel. Because of what Christ has done, because of what God has done in Christ on our behalf, what are some of the outcomes of that? We've already been discussing that, issues like justification, forgiveness, sanctification. But here's another outcome of the gospel. What the gospel does is it entirely obliterates all of the worldly distinctions that we see separate men from one another. Verse 23 there is no Jew nor Greek. That, that in and of itself is huge. The entire Old Testament sacrificial system was built upon establishing a difference between these two people groups. They could not worship together. They thought differently of each other. And then Ephesians tells us that when Christ Jesus died, he obliterated the wall of division so that the two can be made one. For Thousands of years, there was, a, there was a difference between Jew and Greek. There was a religious difference, a political difference. We have certain promises, you don't. We have certain rights, you don't. We get to worship in there, you need to stay out here. There was a huge division between these people, and it was a God-ordained division between these two people. And now that Christ has come, Paul says, I don't care what your skin color is. I don't care who your grandparents are. There is no Jew or Greek any longer. There is no slave nor free. How amazing is that? We live in a country that has abolished slavery and still slavery is the issue that is dividing us. This issue of the repercussions of slavery and the effects of slavery and the wickedness of all these past slave owners. But notice what the gospel does. The gospel says a true slave and his master should be able to come into this building and have no rivalry. A slave and a slave master should be able to sit in our pews together and sing the same songs and come to the same table. That is amazing. Can you imagine worshiping God with your slave master? There is no male or female. We don't even have, there is, there is, by the way, I would argue that the Bible is a patriarchal book. I don't think the word patriarchy is a bad word. I believe in the patriarchy. This is not an obliteration of all patriarchal standards. The same Paul who said there's no male and female, this is the same Paul in his other letters who say, wives, submit to your husbands. What are the women supposed to say? There's no such thing as wives and husbands. We're all one in Christ. Children, obey your parents. There's no such thing as parents. We're all one in Christ. I do not allow a woman to preach or teach. There's no such thing as women. We're all one in Christ. No, so Paul is not saying that these distinctions don't ever matter, that there's no circles, there's no spheres in which these things don't matter. But when it comes to our unity, when it comes to God's love for us, when it comes to our privileges spiritually in the church, being a man gains you nothing. Men are not above women. 
It doesn't matter what your skin color is. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter your sex, your gender. We are one. These are the things that love to divide people out in the world and they have no place. But what's important for us to see is how did this happen? Where does this unity take place? Where does this obliteration of worldly distinctions take place? Well, what does the verse say? For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that's where he began in verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So the gospel doesn't work this way. Jesus died, no distinctions. No, we have to come to Christ by faith And that is the prerequisite for the gospel to obliterate our distinctions. It is only in Christ, it is only through his gospel that any kind of meaningful unity can ever be achieved. And so here's what I think is important for us in terms of what's going on outside these walls. We can reverse engineer these two beautiful verses and see that when Paul says, in Christ, unity is achieved... So that means we can work backward with this. And what it means for us is that if you are seeking to establish unity, if you are seeking to establish unity and equity, whether it's in your family or in your nation, if you want true unity and true equity, you will never, ever get there apart from Christ. The gospels of the world cannot bring true unity. They can bring an artificial unity that maybe lasts for a while. Just like the prodigal son, when he took off, you know, he, he, he enjoyed his freedom for a little while. But it, it didn't take long for the checks to start bouncing. You can, you can maintain through coercive power a kind of artificial unity, but if you want a true abiding unity that actually works, that actually lasts, that actually establishes justice and equality, it won't happen outside of Christ. It won't happen outside of the gospel. Where do you get there is no male or female? Where do you get there is no slave or free? Where do you get there is no Jew or Greek? Where do you get there is no black and white? You get that in Christ. You won't find it outside of him. And that is why I have been concerned with what I've seen. Because in my estimation, we have a lot of people in this country fighting for the same thing. But we're not fighting for the same reasons. We're not fighting with the same understanding of God and of the world, and of the gospel. And my fear is that Christians are too quick to join gospelless forces, gospelless movements, organizations without Christ, and join them in some pursuit to establish justice, correct oppression, and create equality. And we might think, I'm friends with this movement. I'm friends with these people because we all want the same thing. Racism is bad. Is that, is that controversial to anybody in this room? We all want end, to end racism. I want to end oppression. Everybody wants that. But the problem is just like Zeus, that doesn't mean we join forces with movements and political organizations that say they want that. Because there's no friendship for you there if you're in Christ. 
So I'm not even going to tell you what to think about the racism in our country. I'm not going to tell you to, what to think about systemic racism. I'm not going to tell you what to think. You have full permission to feel like there is deep racial corruption in this country if you want to. And we can talk about the stats and we can analyze that and go deeper together. But even if we just assume it, let's just assume it for the moment. Let's just assume that our political structures are deeply flawed and racist. The question is, is how do we identify the problem and what's the solution? And the Christian response will always be different than the non-Christian response. Anyone who rejects Christ, who rejects the gospel, believes that there is unity to be found apart from Christ and they want us to join in that effort. And my answer to you is, folks, we can not do that. Where I think a lot of our problems began is how often we as Americans, as Christian Americans, think of the country as in terms of being a post-Christian America. I heard that expression. I've been to a lot of conferences in my life. Some by choice, some not by choice. And I hear this expression all the time. Doing ministry, you'll, you can find seminars and classes on how to do ministry in a post-Christian America. How to build church and build your church, grow your church in a post-Christian America. Now we can debate whether what it means for, Christian, for the country to be Christian. What is it, was America ever a Christian country? What does that mean? We can, you know, people debate that and we have that conversation. But here's what I want to suggest to us. Describing our country as a post-Christian America is woefully unhelpful. And here's why. Because it assumes our primary identity as a nation can be neutral. In other words, if I were to ask you, you say, I'm gonna, I, we're actually, our family's moving. And I said, oh, that's a bummer. Where are you moving to? And you said, not Nebraska. Is that helpful to me? Maybe a little bit. So how helpful is it to say, America is no longer Christian? Okay. So then what are we? We're just neutral? There's, just, there's no religious system dominating the culture? If you're driving down the highway and you exit, you are no, you're, the road you're on is not the unhighway. You're not on the post-highway road. You're still driving. There's a belief, there's a common perception that at one time this nation was Christian. And whatever that means, the, the general understanding is that Christian ideologies governed the culture and governed the political establishment. And so if we want to claim we are a post-Christian, an unchristianized nation, that's fine. I would agree with that. But that doesn't answer the question, what are we? What God is running the system? There was a, an old conservative politician by the name of Andrew Breitbart who had this famous saying. He said that politics are downstream of culture. What he meant by that is the culture is going to affect politics. The politics won't affect the culture. And I, I think that's true. I think you can see that, for example, in presidential candidates. I think you can see that in a Donald Trump who, before he was running for president, was a pro-abortion man. And then he joined the Republican ticket and suddenly had an epiphany. 
I think you can see that on the other side of the aisle in people like President Obama and Hillary Clinton who for, are on record in the past of saying, I believe marriage is a holy institution between one man and one woman and it didn't take them long to abandon that either. Why? Because their cultural side, the side of the culture wars that they were on shifted and they had to shift to keep up with the tide. The culture will dictate the politics. But here's the problem. That begs the question, is the culture where this thing stops? Or is there something upstream from it? And I would argue that religion is upstream culture. A country's culture is its religious exoskeleton. What the culture, what the customs of the culture is like is dictated by the predominant presiding religion. The fact that, that an Islamic-controlled territory in the Middle East looks vastly different than John Calvin's Geneva is not just a matter of circumstances. It's not just geographic differences. It was a difference of religion that affected the culture and then affected the politics. So Christianity might be post-Christian, or forgive me, America might be post-Christian, but that doesn't mean America is a-religious. That doesn't mean there isn't a competing worldview, a competing religion seeking establishment. And I would argue with you that what we are seeing in our country right now is what we have been seeing for so many years, which is a new rival religion. These are not just isolated culture wars. Oh, that group over there happens to think this. Let's, we disagree. And that group, they think this. No, 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 no. We are seeing the uprising of a religious revolution. Yeah, I, I like to think of it, I, I'm a big fan of Lord of the Rings. And this is the story of Lord of the Rings. The ultimate bad guy in it, Sauron. He's like the, the ultimate bad guy. But when the ring was destroyed, he lost all of his power. So he turned into just like this invisible presence. And then it, from The Hobbit to the end of Lord of the Rings, as he gained more and more followers, he grew in strength, he grew in strength, he grew in strength, and then he became much more powerful. What we have seen in this country is a pagan religion that established a long time ago with not very much force, but it's been growing and growing and growing, and now it finally has enough muscle to start flexing. And so my call to us as a church is I'm not going to tell you right now, uh, not that I ever would, I'm not going to force you to think about our current political system in any certain way, but here's what I want to warn us from. I want us to be warned from thinking that whatever problems we do have, politically, systemically, culturally, thinking that the, appro uh, the appropriate response is to hitch our wagons to a pagan horse or to jump on a pagan bandwagon because that bandwagon is not taking you where the gospel can take you. Any foreign religion seeking to correct the oppression of our system, if it's not founded in Christ, all it can do is establish a new unjust system. In other words, just like the Nazis treated the Jews unjustly and the Soviets wanted to topple that system. But what happens if they win? Did they correct oppression? Did they establish justice in the land? No, it's just a new form of oppression. 
And so if a pagan religion takes over this country, if a pagan religion becomes the dominant force in this country, some of our problems might be corrected. But they will only be replaced with new oppression. Why? Because where is unity found? Only in Christ. Let me give you what I think is a very practical example of this. And here's, here's really what I'm talking about. And this is where some of you may be offended. You can talk to me any time of the week. I mean that. That's not a threat. I really would love to discuss it. I believe that Christians have no business, no place, supporting or promoting the Black Lives Matter movement. We have no business there. And you think, well, why not? Because what, is, what does that slogan mean? It means black people matter. You're a Christian. Don't you think that? Don't you think that? I would challenge you, if you're a person in this room and you think black people don't matter, we do need to have a conversation. Of course black lives matter. But I would not use that phrase. Because that phrase means so much more than you think it means. Just like, I think women should be allowed reproductive freedom. But I don't join marches and hold up signs saying I'm for women's reproductive freedom. You know why? Because that phrase doesn't mean what you think it means. These slogans are propaganda slogans that have worldviews attached to them. Uh, I, like to, I like to use the analogy. I know it's maybe trite and it's overused, but I like to use the analogy. Black Lives Matter is a Trojan horse. You remember the Trojan horse analogy? They, the, the enemies, they, they brought the big present, this big, beautiful wooden horse, and they said, oh, great, and they brought it into their camp, Then they opened the doors at night, and all the enemy troops now are behind enemy lines. Black Lives Matter, this movement is a Trojan horse. It shows up at the door of the Christian church, and it says, on one side of the horse is painted Black Lives Matter, and on the other side of the Trojan horse is painted anti-racists. They say, we are the Black Lives Matter movement. We're the anti-racist movement. Let us in. And now we're in this, this difficult dilemma because we either say, no, you can keep your horse. And what, do, what does that make us look like? A bunch of racists. Right? No, black lives don't matter. No, we are pro-racism here. And no Christian wants to look racist. That's against the gospel. So we let it in. And here's what I have seen time and time and time again. Once that horse gets through the door, your Christian faith, the principles of your Christian faith start tumbling. It's a chain reaction because this movement is not interested in black lives. This movement is not interested in racism. This is a foreign religion seeking to supplant Western Christianity. Here's one of the ways I prove that. One of the things we've seen, here's what it looks like for people who have joined in the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, organizations have had to publicly release statements saying we believe Black Lives Matter using the hashtag. People have had to use, make public statements saying it's not enough to be a non-racist. You have to be an anti-racist. And then what they mean by that is you have to listen and obey to this new system. Everything they command you to do, you need to do it. You need to shut up and you need to listen and you need to do whatever they tell you to do. And this is why we have seen people throughout the country literally, literally on their knees and hands begging for, for forgiveness in front of people. 
begging for, it's, it's, it's confession and penance. This is a religion that requires an incredible amount of penance and confession to their gods. And when you don't do it, you are canceled, you are shamed, and then you are forced to go on a big apology tour. So Drew Brees had the audacity to say, I, I, I'm with the movement, but I just don't think it's respectful to kneel for the flag. And he was eaten for lunch, and he had to go on four apology tours. His wife had to post a video apologizing, and there's still people in the NFL saying, we don't forgive him, we wouldn't play for the, with the guy. They are not looking to forgive you, but they want you to bow the knee. Because this is not about racial equality. This is about establishing a new religion. And here's how I can prove it. Uh, by the way, there are actually people all throughout the country who are leaving, like they're, 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 they're canceling their gym memberships or they're leaving their churches, not because their church spoke out against Black Lives Matter, but because they didn't say anything at all. There was a whole movement. People would hold signs that say, silence is, uh, I can't remember the word, but if, you, if you're silent, you're affirming the racism. It's not even enough just to, to be silent. You must speak, you must use their terminology, and you must make amends according to their sacrificial sacraments. It's a new religion. I want you to imagine that our church, okay, fine, the elders, we're going to get together and, and we want to show, here's, here's how they cloud the language, you need to show a solidarity with the black community. So we're going to release a statement, okay? And uh, we want to show solidarity with the black community. So here's what we're going to say. Here's our statement, theoretically, in order to make us allies is the word. They bully you and pressure you into becoming allies with their movement. And, and here's how we're going to prove that we are allies. We're going to release a statement that says uh, something like this. Black lives are made in the image of the triune God. I dare you to release that statement and see if anyone finds it acceptable. No, you must use Black Lives Matter you can't say image of God. Why? Because that's too Christian for them. Well, let's say we're going to release an another statement. We want to show solidarity and we want to be anti-racist. So here's what we're going to say. We're going we're to up the ante. We're going to go beyond Black Lives Matter. We're going to say this. Racism is evil and God will send unrepentant racists to the same eternal hell that he sends unrepentant sodomites, transgenders, fornicators, and liars to. Do you think that will satisfy the movement? No. You want to know why? Because those are some of their essential tenets. From the Black Lives Matter website, Black Lives Matter is a global network which even in its infancy has become a political home for many. We make space for transgender brothers and sisters to participate and lead, and we are self-reflexive and do the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege and uplift black trans folk. We build a space that affirms black women and is free from sexism, misogyny, and environments which are men-centered. We disrupt the Western-prescribed nuclear family structure and foster a queer-affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking. I saw someone on Twitter say, unless you believe in defund the police, you are not with Black Lives Matter. I saw someone on Twitter say, if you go to a Black Lives Matter march, do not go and preach the gospel to them or talk about Jesus. You need to stand in solidarity against racism. This isn't about Jesus. 
And then the, 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 of all, the president of the SBC, the president of the SBC goes on and gives their big annual year address and he commands their churches to use the Black Lives Matter logo and to march in their rallies and he makes the distinction, I understand that the political group has been hijacked but we're about the slogan. We, we don't agree with all that political stuff. And here's what I want to suggest to you. Nothing's been hijacked. Actually, I take that back. It is being hijacked by the Christians. This is what this movement started as. When this all started with Colin Kaepernick and the three women who established this movement, this has always been their identity. It's actually the Christians who are trying to Christianize the movement. We're the ones trying to hijack it. Let me say this as, 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 as carefully as I can. Black Lives Matter is a godless, satanic, anti-Christian movement, and I'm seeing it destroy the faith of countless Christian families. You can't say something different. By the way, you, you, we can't even just say uh, black lives are created in the image of God and therefore they matter. Can't say that. That's not solidarity. That's not allyship. You're still trying to score, you know, your, your, your conservative principles into this thing. Which, by the way, just as a brief side note, uh, black lives are made in the triune God is a much, in the image of the triune God, is a much stronger statement. And you want to know why? Because now we can actually ground why black lives matter. Take God out of the picture. Why do black lives matter? Says who? Why should I care a lick about any black person or any person of any color that doesn't immediately benefit me? Without God, where do you get that? You don't get that from Darwin, who, by the way, was a horrible racist. Charles Darwin was a disgusting racist. He hated black people. He believed black people were less further along in the evolutionary timeline. He, Charles Darwin is the one who started the whole movement called black people monkeys because he believed they basically were. You don't get black lives matter from evolution. You don't get Black Lives Matter from the secular, arbitrary, morally relativistic worldview that these people are operating from. Imagine, oh, well, fine, fine, okay, I'm done being uh, incendiary. We'll just release a nice, simple statement. All Black Lives Matter, including the ones in the womb. No, no, now you're being conservative again. Now you're being Christian again. Black women should have the right to abort their children. It's actually racist to be against abortion because you're trying to oppress black women. Even though the founder of Planned Parenthood, who I know Planned Parenthood is not the only people producing abortion, but they're certainly leading the way. And the founder of Planned Parenthood hated what she referred to as the Negro population, establishing these in minority communities so that they could exterminate that population. But you're not an ally if you say that. Why? Because this is not about racial equality. This is not about black people mattering to God. What we are seeing in our country right now is the overthrow of our entire way of life. They want to establish an entirely new system, one in which biblical values and principles are entirely revoked from it. I would remind you, I'm seeing all over Twitter some of the blue checkmark leaders 
telling us that Christianity in itself is a white supremacist religion that has roots in colonization. To even be a Christian makes you a colonizer and a white supremacist. And then the president of the SBC gets online and says, we need to say Black Lives Matter. No, we don't. I would submit to you that Christians have been able to fight racism, have been able to fight prejudice and oppression long before an institution known as Black Lives Matter ever existed. I would submit to you that Christians have never needed the help of godless pagan cultures, of godless pagan societies to establish the kingdom of God. I would submit to you that we don't need pagan marches, we don't need pagan hashtags, we don't need pagan rhetoric, we don't need pagan movements, we don't need pagan political parties, we don't need the worldviews of men to establish justice, correct oppression, fight racism, and seek to bring the kingdom of God to earth. We don't need them. So do not buy into this fallacy that if you don't say what the mob tells you to say and bow where the mob tells you to bow and believe what the mob tells you to believe that you're somehow promoting racism. We can fight racism according to God's way. I don't need your march. I don't need your signs. I don't need your trite Instagram, put a black screen on my Instagram to show solidarity. I don't need to buy and read certain books which are not Christian in any way, sense, or fashion. I don't need your help. So how do we do it then? If I'm telling you, be weary of joining bandwagons, of joining movements, of joining, just just going with every wind of doctrine that's blowing. Well, what do we do? Well, let me just end with this. We're going to end with four principles, and then, and then we're going to read a scripture. And I'm sorry this has been so heavy, but this is important stuff. Four ways. These are very general. I get it. They're not that specific, but that's okay. They, 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 they were laying the groundwork for how we then do move forward, okay? So four ways to establish the kingdom of God in our country. Four ways to to lead and walk through the turmoil of our country right now. Number one, we will lead and we will end with the gospel. We will lead and we will end with the gospel. We will remember that outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no unity to be found. That non-Christian worldviews can only establish a new kind of wickedness, a new kind of oppression. They cannot obliterate it. So we will lead with the gospel. We will walk as Christians and we will establish the gospel. We will preach the gospel. We will promote the gospel and we will believe that it is ultimately the gospel that can bring about any kind of cultural change. Anything that wants nothing to do with the gospel, we want nothing to do with them. We will remember that unity and the abolishment of sinful divisions is not found until, verse 26, you are baptized into Christ and put him on. Then we can start talking about unity. We will lead and end with the gospel. Number two, we will practice sola scriptura. What did we learn in the pastoral epistles? That Timothy was given the word of God, which what? Equipped him for every good work. 
The word of God is what allowed Timothy, as Paul said, to, quote, teach and reproof and no sound doctrine. The word of God is the sufficient standard given to Christians to interpret the culture and then establish a plan of attack. We don't need anti-biblical movements for dictating what's happening here and how do we respond. We don't want to take the glasses of a foreign religion and put them on in order to see the world. We want to put the glasses of the Bible on and we want to see the world through the scriptures and then seek to establish justice as the scriptures command us to do. We will never join movements and we will never participate in events that don't wholeheartedly believe that scripture is the tool we use to interpret this culture and establish what to do. We have the word of God to speak to our society. We will practice sola scriptura. Number three, we will speak the truth. We will say true things. Christian, Christianity is a religion of truth. Jesus says, I came, this is what he told Pilate, I came to testify to the truth. We need to be a bold people that says what's true no matter who it offends. We will not cower to the demands of a mob. We will say true things no matter who it offends. And by the way, a lot of times, let me, let me be very clear about this, a lot of times, saying true things means you're going to offend your conservative compatriots as well. Don't for a moment think that saying true things is just about owning the libs. There is rot, unbiblical rot in our entire political system. You need to be willing not just to say things that offend liberals, but you need to be willing to offend people who voted the way you voted. Because they don't believe true things a lot of times too. Our allegiance is to the truth. Not to a mob, not to a party, it's to the truth. Christians say true things and that takes courage. And that takes strength. And let me tell you this, it takes us to come together collectively. If you're out there by yourself, you will almost always fold. Not all the time. But it is very difficult to be brave alone. We will speak the truth. We will say what needs to be said. Is there rampant racism in our culture? I don't know, but let's analyze it. And no matter where the evidence leads, let's say it. Do we need to topple our political system? Do we need to establish something new? I don't know. Let's analyze it from a biblical perspective. Let's come to the truth and let's say it. We need to speak the truth. And here's an important principle. This is the last one, number four. We will lead with the gospel. We will practice sola scriptura. We will speak the truth. And then number four, we will never say we're sorry. We will go on no apology tours. We won't say we're sorry. Now, as Christians, yes, do we say sorry in the Christian life? All the time. All the time. Ask my wife how often it is that Christians have to say they're sorry. So I'm not saying we don't confess our sins. I'm not saying we don't say we're sorry when we do something wrong. Of course we do those things. But we will never apologize for something that isn't a biblical sin. 
We will never simply say we're sorry to protect our careers. We will never say we're sorry to appease a mob. We will never say we're sorry just because people got offended. That's not the criteria of confession. You confess when someone can open up their Bible and show you where you sinned. Then you better say you're sorry. But if they're just simply mad because you're not going with the wind of doctrine that they're blowing, you have no reason to say you're sorry. If they threaten to boycott you and shut your business down and shut your church down and shame you, then you embrace that, you accept that, but you don't dare say you're sorry. In other words, Christians never ever confess to merely satisfy an insatiable mob. Rather, we confess to glorify the already satisfied God who is rich in mercy and eager to forgive. If you want to confess your sins, go to the God who has forgiven you in Christ Jesus and promises to forgive all those who confess. Do not run to the mob that demands your confession and they won't even forgive you when you do it. Our God is already satisfied and eager to forgive. That's the God I want to confess my sins to, not the one of this new pagan religion which will never be satisfied. There is no gospel here. You're always wrong. You're always in guilt. You always have something to say sorry for. And we won't allow that gospel to corrupt our church. We will never say we're sorry. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in 10, verses 10 through 15. I wanted to end with this because it's an important reminder of our need to come together as a church in Christ in order to stand our ground against any opposition. Ephesians chapter 4, begin with me in verse 10, and then we will pray. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all things that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, Here's the key, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love.